Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Oreopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Thank you, Queenie, for that excellent reading of God's Word. Um, yeah, so today um, the passage um, is a passage that uh, Pastor John actually preached on earlier this year. Uh, but hopefully, as you'll see, I'll, I'll be going at it from a slightly different angle, uh, more focusing on some of the methodologies that Paul used in reaching the peoples. Um, but before I start the formal part of the sermon, I, I've got some bad news to share with you guys. Um, as you might know, Christianity is declining very quickly in the West. Um, according to Pew Research, the number of Americans identifying as Protestant Christians have dropped from 51% in 2009 
to 43% in 2019, while the number of Catholics have declined from 23% to 20% in the same period. Um, similar figures have been reported across uh, the entire Western world, including Australia and New Zealand. Now, less than half of all Australians would identify as Christians. Even in places like South Korea, where the church has seen explosive growth in the past century, Christianity is stagnating, leading to some Christian researchers from the Gospel Coalition questioning what the causes are. Now, the reasons for this decline are complicated, as do all sociological phenomena. However, if anything can be learned from this, it, it is that it's a sobering warning to us all that we must not ignore our missionary mandate. But the missionary mandate is a tricky one because often Western churches will actively send missionaries to faraway lands to bring the gospel to tribal places, to Muslims and Hindus. In most Australian churches you walk to, there will be a, a, a board at the back of the church with all the names of the missionaries they are praying for and sending. But how often do we employ missional thinking about how to reach our own culture? How, how often have you seen Christians integrate missionary approaches into our own ministries? Evangelism, Bible studies, Sunday school, university ministries. And worst of all, culture keeps changing. So what previously worked, what strategies worked in a particular culture might not work in 20 years' time or 30 years' time. So how do we stay engaged with our culture, with the gospel? In today's passage, you'll see a prime example of missionary methodology demonstrated by one of the greatest missionaries in human history, the Apostle Paul. And in his engagement with pagans in Athens, he shows us a helpful framework of how to engage with people with little or zero knowledge of the Bible. Firstly, let's look at a little bit of the background of Athens and why Paul was there. Have a look at verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens. The them refers to Timothy and Silas, uh, Paul's companions. The reason that Paul was in Athens because it was because he was waiting for his friends to arrive so that they could continue on their missionary journey to Macedonia. Now, it is quite possible that Paul's friends were hoping that I should give him a little holiday there. Uh, but as with all great missionaries, Paul sees spiritual needs everywhere, even while they're on holidays. We're told in verse 16 that Paul was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. The Greek word used for greatly distressed is paroxino. And if you're a medical professional, uh, you might know this is where the medical term paroxysmal, uh, which uh, comes from, and it describes fits and seizures. And this is how troubled Paul felt by what he saw in Athens. Secondly, for us 21st century readers, there's something we need to know about Athens. It is unlike any other city in the entire Roman Empire. While Rome was the center of political power, Athens, on the other hand, was a seat of knowledge, similar to cities like Boston in North America, or Cambridge or Oxford in the UK, 
This is where all the intellectual elites of the empire meet and test out their new ideas and theories. It was a very different place to Paul's hometown of Tarsus or any other towns and cities that he had visited. So how do you do mission when you just land on the field? How do you, how do you start cross-cultural ministry? I would say that most missionary organizations recommend that you devote two to three years uh, to, start, to language and culture learning. However, Paul is a little bit ahead of the game here because as the Jew who grew up in the, in the Roman Empire, he can already speak several languages. But as you see later, he still studied the culture with due, with due diligence. And as a result, Paul was able to choose his points of entry strategically and effectively. Have a look at Paul's choice of location. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogues with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace uh, day by day with those who happened to be there. While there's nothing special about Paul's choice of synagogues when he engaged with Jews and Greek converts to Judaism, what is really interesting is why Paul chose to engage the pagans at the marketplace. I mean, why didn't he go to uh, Greek places of worship? Why didn't he go to pagan temples, for example? The reason for that is because Greek communities are structured differently to Jewish ones. While the synagogue might be the social religious center of Jewish life, for the Greeks, the marketplace is where news get exchanged. This is where new ideas get debated. So it makes perfect sense for Paul to start his missionary engagement there. Now the question for us is, how come Paul has this knowledge while other missionaries might not? And later on in his engagement, we'll see that Paul has even read Greek poets and gathered other deep insight into the pagan worldview. How does he know this stuff? How come we don't get this level of insight in our ministries? Now, contrary to popular belief, the Roman Empire was not some kind of multicultural utopia where all ethnic groups just lived happily ever after. No, these com communities were often at odds with one another. So the empire built walls segregating communities from one another as a form of containment, similar to the walls built between Jewish and Palestinian settlements in the West Bank. For Paul, as the Jew that grew up in the Roman Empire, unless he actively learned about Greek communities and their worldview, there is no way that he'd know this much about their culture. And the secret to Paul's insight is given in verse 23. Have a look. It says, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. It says, For, for as I walked around and looked carefully. What does this mean? Well, in the social sciences, uh, there's a particular discipline called field research, uh, which is a way of gathering information in order to understand the community or their culture. Uh, to put simply, field research is to live among the people, learn their language, observe their worldview in order to accurately describe it afterwards. 
And then once you have this information, you can actually do some pretty cool stuff with it afterwards. For example, you can put in diagrams. Um, not sure which one Hong Kong is. Uh, you, can, you can tell me later on afterwards if you want to. Uh, or uh, you can uh, put it in a chart. Uh, and you can share it with other workers to fast track their ministry so that they don't have to repeat your mistakes uh, afterwards. Now, Paul might not have called this, his waiting time in Athens field research, but that's essentially what he did. And he did it not only to demonstrate its relevance to his ministry, but to show us a new way. And this is how you engage a culture that is foreign to the gospel, by listening to them first. Now, here you might ask, if field research is so important, why don't I hear more about it in ministry circles? Well, unfortunately, even in missionary circles, the practice of conducting field research is a bit of a lost art. Uh, on the recent trip to Australia, we were asked by our seminary to share a topic on what we've been learning on the field, and we chose this very topic. And upon receiving it, the director of the cross-cultural department said that, that as far as long as he's been there, he hasn't heard a single missionary presenting on this topic. So why not? Well, it seems like the drive for quick ministry results and more impressive reports have caused fewer missionaries and church planters are willing to put in the effort to do field research. Why? Because field research takes time. And while you're still analyzing a culture, you might not have much to show for it. So many missionaries and church planters are therefore under pressure to take the fast route, which is to take a tool or a method that has worked somewhere else and just planted in their own context. And we've seen that in our own ministry. We've had people who borrowed tools that worked elsewhere in the Muslim world and just impressed it upon the way and found that it doesn't quite work. So how do we develop ministry strategies suitable for every context? Here in the next section, Paul doesn't give us a tract. He doesn't give us a tool or a self-starter kit. Instead, in his sermon on Mount Areopagus, Paul gave us a methodology, which many have used as a template for contextualizing the gospel, which is how you transmit the gospel from one culture to another. And this methodology is one that can be applied in just about every single cultural context. And it follows this in this pattern. Resonance, dissonance, and gospel solution. Um, first, imagine if you're a monotheistic Jew who believes in Jesus. How would you feel when you venture into a city full of idols? You might feel disgusted, confused, or bewildered. And that's exactly how Paul feels on the inside. But if you look at what he says in verse 22 and 23, he says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. Here, Paul doesn't tell them off for being idolaters like a good fine brimstone preacher would. Why did he commend them for their religious devotion? The reason Paul did this is because, it's because behind every cultural phenomenon is a human longing for eternity. Why did the Greeks worship so many gods? It's because they longed for the divine. They longed 
for the blessings that can only come from the true God. Their problem is, 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 is ignorance. They simply don't know who the real God is. In other words, it's the object of their worship that is the problem, not the strength of their devotion. And that's why Paul affirms them for this. He wants to establish some kind of resonance with them in order to preach the rest of his sermon. And to do this, he must establish some kind of connection with their existing worldview. However, notice how Paul goes on to expose some deep inherent problems within their worldview in the very next sentence. And this is the part we call dissonance in our template. Verse 23, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Now, what is this unknown God business? To understand this, you actually have to understand a little bit about the Greek polytheistic worldview. In the Greek worldview, every god is supposed to be in control of a certain domain. For example, the sky is controlled by Zeus. The ocean and the sea is controlled by Poseidon. And love and fertility are controlled by Aphrodite. So you worship the gods in order to get blessing from their respective domain. So if you want rain for your crops, you go to the temple of Zeus. If you want love and fertility, you go to the temple of Aphrodite. Then someone came along and reasoned, quite rightly so, that, hey, what if we accidentally left some god? What if that god gets angry because we didn't worship him or her properly? Hence, that's why they constructed this altar to an unknown god. Now, I just want you guys to take in with me the irony of the situation a little bit here. This is the center of learning in the entire Roman Empire. The smartest people are supposed to live here, and yet they just declare their ignorance for the whole world to see. It's so ironic, it's actually funny. So why is Paul exposing chinks in the Greek worldview? Why is he employing dissonance? It's because he wants to humble them in order to prepare their hearts for gospel sharing. Ultimately, he's trying to demonstrate that any worldview without the gospel is an incoherent worldview. It might have the right longings, but it cannot and will not provide satisfactory answers to those longings. And this is not just the problem with Greco-Roman worldview. It is a problem with every single non-Christian culture on earth. And recently, I had the privilege of meeting up with uh, a Tibetan scholar who um, uh, converted out of Tibetan Buddhism. And over dinner, he said, he asked me, do you know what the fundamental problem is with Tibetan Buddhism? I'm like, I study Islam, I don't know. And he says, you know, we Tibetan Buddhists yearn for equality and fairness, yet we also believe in reincarnation. Do you know what that means? It means that in the next life, you can reincarnate as a cow or a chicken or even worse, an insect. If you're not careful, you might get eaten by someone. How is that supposed to be fair? And to this, Paul declares, what you don't know 
what you can't make sense of, I am going to proclaim to you. And he does it by recounting the gospel narrative from creation in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Now, with a Jew, Paul doesn't need to state this. But with Greek pagans, he absolutely needs to state this. Why? Because, he, because the God he's proclaiming is the ultimate creator of the universe. And Paul does this for at least two reasons. First, by doing this, Paul turns the Greek worldview on his head that any God that is powerful enough and worthy of worship should not depend on human worship or gifts, as if somehow their power is restricted by the amount of worship they receive. In fact, if we owe our existence to him, the relationship we have with him is more like that between a father and his children. Secondly, and more importantly, unless Paul tells this clearly, his audience will simply reinterpret the God of the Bible in light of their existing worldview, which is by simply adding Yahweh to their pantheon of gods. Or worse, they might make Yahweh seem like an ethnocentric God in the, same, in the sense that he's only the God of the Jews. And that's why Paul is at pains to emphasize that the God he preached is the one who created the whole world. Then Paul does something very controversial in the next section. He quotes from two pagan authors to affirm the biblical worldview. And he does this in two places in verse 28. The first quote comes from a Greek poet called Apomenides, which is, for in him we live and move and have our being. And the second comes from the Stoic author uh, from the same city as Paul called Aratus, who wrote, we are his offspring. Furthermore, the deity that these, offers, uh, these authors were referring to in their original context was not Yahweh, the God of the Bible, but Zeus, the leader of the Greek pantheon. So that when Aratus originally wrote, we are his offering, he's essentially saying, we, the Greek people, are Zeus' offering. Now, we know that ontologically, in terms of attributes, Yahweh and Zeus are not the same deity. Their characters are different. Their attributes are different. So what Paul is doing here by quoting poems about Zeus is like quoting from Dalai Lama's book on happiness to point to the ultimate joy found in the Bible. It's like using the, the Quran to, to prove the deity of Jesus. Is that allowed? Or is this some kind of a, uh, outrageous piece of divine proof texting? Now, if this is the first time that you've encountered something this, like this, I can see that you might be experiencing, experiencing some cognitive dissonance. But I'll get to those concerns shortly. For now, let's look closely at what Paul is doing. Basically, he is employing elements from their existing worldview in order to construct bridges to the gospel. To understand why he's doing it, 
we need to understand something about the nature of God and his relationship with general revelation. If God created Adam and Eve and all human beings are descendants of the same ancestors, then by nature, some truth about God would have been passed down through the generations, even if all they had was verbal storytelling. That is why often when missionaries land in foreign mission fields, even for the first time, they encounter stories of such stark similarity to biblical truth that they cannot simply be dismissed as coincidences. For example, when missionaries first encountered Chinese culture, they discovered to their great surprise that ancient Chinese texts frequently made references to the heavens as an almighty being, as the god above all gods, uh, such as this one from the Analects of Confucius. And you'll find verses like these, and, and if you can read Chinese, it, it says, which translates to, if one offends the heavens, then no one shall answer his prayers. And that's why Catholicism in Chinese is translated as which literally means uh, the teaching and religion of the heavenly Lord. So what does this mean? It means, firstly, that God is truly the God of all nations. And when the Lord Jesus promised in, verse, in Matthew 28 that he will go with us to the end of the world to take the gospel to the nations, he's not just providing some solemn encouragement, but he's already working in those cultures of the unreached, even before the first missionaries arrived. And this should be a tremendous encouragement to us all because it helps us to realize that when we go on mission with God, whether to reach our city or to an unreached people group in a faraway land, God is already working there. And secondly, and more practically, the discovery of these bridges connect, uh, that connect the listener's worldview with the biblical worldview, it helps them to realize that the God of the Bible is not some kind of foreign deity introduced by missionaries to colonize them, but the God their ancestors have longed for. Now, we get to the part where, I address, where I'm trying to address the concerns of some of you had when I suggested using Dalai Lama's book or the Quran to lead people to the true God. In both of these cases, and in Paul's case in Athens, we're talking about first contact evangelism for non-believers, not discipleship for believers. Would Paul ever use poems dedicated to Zeus for personal devotion? Would he encourage the use of the Quran for all the analects of Confucius for discipleship? Of course not. But does he have the freedom to use the fragments of truth contained within them to point to Jesus? Absolutely yes. And that's why Paul took such a risk to use texts from pagan poems to show, it, it, the reason he's doing it is to show us a new way of seeing and the need for proper gospel contextualization so that our minds might be open to a new paradigm of sharing the gospel. However, just as Paul was at pains to stress the gospel's relevance to the new context, you'll find that when it comes to the core of the gospel, this is something that he will never compromise. Have a look at verse 29. 
Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. What is Paul doing here? Paul is defining what sin is for the Greek audience. He is essentially telling them that sin is misplaced worship, that by worshipping worthless idols, they have mistreated the real God. So flowing from that, Paul tells them that they need to repent and change their ways in verse 30. Because God's, patient, because God's patience will run out one day. And then in verse 31, Paul delivers the crescendo of his sermon, the gospel solution. Have a look. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the men he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. At this, we're told the reaction from the audience in verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Why is that? Because the Greek worldview is dichotomistic. It believes that the, the soul is pure and clean, but the body is dirty and polluted. So the ultimate aim for a person is, is to have that person's soul or spirit liberated from the bondage of the body into an, into an ethereal existence. And yet this saviour that Paul preached has chosen to be resurrected in bodily form. Why? To the Greeks, what, what Paul has done here is, is the equivalent of having a fall in the last meter of a 100 meters race. A terrible ending to a cinematic masterpiece. It is as if they were telling Paul, mate, you had our attention for the last hour, but you've blown it now. So why didn't Paul contextualize away the death and resurrection of Jesus from his sermon? Because to do that would be to preach another gospel. So while Paul demonstrates incredible flexibility in his initial engagements with the pagan culture, he never wavers from preaching the core of the gospel, and not only this time, but every single time. For he wrote in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because it is only by the cross that we are saved. This is the reason that the gospel of Jesus can fulfill the, the eternal longings of every culture. Take this away, Christianity becomes worthless. And this is the point where you separate between serious inquirers and curious onlookers. I think of all the Australians that I've shared the gospel with. The most common response is, no worries, mate, uh, this is not for me. Uh, she'll be right. My life is fine. However, as shown through the next few verses, a small number did follow up with Paul, and some became believers of this gospel. And these include Dionysius, who was a member of the Areopagus, and a woman named Damaris, as well as a few others. So what should we make out of Paul's sermon? What lessons can we glean from this very special text? Firstly, I don't know about the church in Hong Kong, but in Australia, we have a problem with Christendom. Uh, what is Christendom? Uh, the Christendom approach to ministry or to missions, uh, it's like 
Well, firstly, Christendom is like two words blended together, Christ and kingdom. The Christendom approach is the approach taken by the church when there was no separation between the state and the church, when Western culture was synonymous with Christianity. Uh, so they wrongly treated their own earthly kingdoms as if it was the same thing as Christ's kingdom. But as Jesus himself said, my kingdom is not of this world. So the first problem with the Christendom approach to missions is that it's centripetal, which means that you need to come to my turf in order to hear the gospel rather than going to where lost people are, their homes, their offices, their gathering places, and their marketplace. The second problem, which is uh, probably the greatest hindrance to missions, is that the Christendom approach is moralistic and highly critical of non-Christians around them. And, I'll, and unfortunately, I've even done this in the past. And I'm ashamed of, of that now. See, the reason we do that is because when we first encounter a culture or a worldview that is different to ours, our first reaction is often to criticize it. But if we're not careful, this approach can become a baton that drives people away from Jesus unnecessarily. Now, don't get me wrong. There is plenty to criticize in a non-Christian culture. But the reason they're wrong is because they don't have the gospel. And that's why Paul chose not to preach a sermon that is primarily against idolatry, but ultimately about the cross. So how can we? apply missionary methodology in our own context. This is the point where you go, I've heard enough theories. I want to see it in action. Well, I think if you go anywhere in the Western world these days, um, one of the greatest modern challenges to the church now is this movement, the LGBTQ movement, uh, sometimes also called the gender identity movement or uh, the sexual identity movement. How would you engage someone uh, who is starting to be influenced by this movement with Paul's methodology? Maybe you're a high school teacher and these ideas are, are popping up among your students. Maybe your own children are struggling, to, struggling to, to, to deal with what their friends are saying and what they read on social media. Uh, maybe you even know someone or has already had conversations with someone and you enjoy enough of a relationship to actually talk about these things. Now, although we're primarily uh, focused on Muslims, but it's, if it's up to us, this is how I might go about it. Um, firstly, just like Paul walked around Athens and carefully studied their places of worship, I will first try to have conversations with people from this movement. Then I will supplement these conversations by reading and some study, trying to understand the history and the current status of where things are. Then I will begin the conversation by saying, isn't it amazing that you want affirmation for your, for your uniqueness and you strive for equality? These are the eternal longings that we all want because God uh, that created the whole universe has created everybody equal and unique so that no two of his children are exactly the same. But... Is sexuality all there is to you? Is gender the only identity you have? No. We are more than just our sexuality, our gender identities. 
And because the LGBTQ movement is a movement focused on these identities, they cannot and will not cater for all of you. In other words, the problem with these movements is that they're a one-trick pony. They're not holistic. In fact, to allow yourself, to allow your entire being to be pigeonholed just as a gay person or just as a transgender person is to subject yourself to a great loss of power and agency. In fact, some of the most influential thinkers in the identity movement have already, have, have already recognized this. Take the French philosopher Michel Foucault, for example. And some people call this guy the father of identity movements. Uh, and he actually lived most of his life as a practicing homosexual. And one day, uh, a reporter asked him, well, if you live with a man, why don't you come out and identify as, as a homosexual? He said, why would I do that? Because to him, to be pigeonholed into just one identity is to lose out in power relations. To be caricatured into one categorization is to open oneself up to countless exploitations by those who have chosen to be more nuanced. And in fact, to invest so much into this identity is to actually treating it as a god. And that is the sin of idolatry. And that is an affront to the creator God who created you to be much, much more than that. So is there anyone who'd recognize me for all that I am? More than just my sexual identity, more than just my gender, more than just my social identity, my race and my nationality? Yes, there is. And his name is Jesus. He understands it because he is also a victim of mistaken identities. When Jesus began his ministry, people said, isn't this the son of Joseph? But he is much, much more than just the son of a carpenter. People thought he was only coming to save Israel from Roman occupation, but he came for so much more than that. And that's why Jesus understands what it's like to be misunderstood. And on the cross, as Jesus hung on that cross, being nailed to that cross, bleeding, people said, said to him, if you're the son of God, why don't you come down from that cross? But that's not what the son of God came to do. Because if he had came down from that cross, then we would all be lost. And that's why when he died for us on the cross and rose on the third day, the redemption he provided is for all of you, not just a part of you. So that when you're in Jesus, when your primary identity is no longer in your social class, your nationality, your race, your gender, you're free, free to be in Christ. Because of that, he's, you are free to be truly you. Now, although I haven't struggled in my sexual or gender identity, I have struggled plenty in other identities. I came to Australia from China when I was 12 years old. Uh, the the Australians, Australians told me that uh, you're not an Aussie, you're Chinese. And when I went back to China, they said, this boy has been Australianized. I was what they call a third culture kid. Hands up if you had similar experiences. I didn't even know which team to cheer for in the Olympics. I had a confused identity growing up. 
and none of these got resolved until I became a Christian. And one day, my old pastor preached a sermon. He said, when you are in Christ, you're no longer Australian. And you're not Chinese either, but you are a Christian. And then I realized, I don't have to define myself based on my nationality anymore. I don't have to define myself based on my culture and my race. I don't have to play this game anymore because Christ has already given me that freedom. So would you like to attain that freedom? For Christ has created you much, much more than just a gender and your sexuality. Would you like to take up this and be truly you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that your church is under stress these days. Stress from society that just keeps asking questions. And sometimes we don't have the right answer for them. Lord, help us. Lord, help us to, to have wisdom, to hear from you, but also hear from the cries of the culture. For you alone has the solution and the answer for their eternal longings. So we pray, Lord, that you might raise for your church's sake a generation of missionaries, not just missionaries who would go to faraway lands to preach the gospel to among the unreached, but also missionaries into their own cultures. May you do that in the West as well as here in Hong Kong for your glory and for the, prolifer for the proliferation of the church, for it is the bride of Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.